You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, it is with great joy that we begin the year of our Lord 2019 in His name and with His Word, especially this most beautiful passage from Matthew, the visit of the wise men to the baby Jesus. We'll consider... We'll consider it first the history, and then, and then we want to think about how the wise men are examples to us and our faith, and how they, how they show us how the Lord enlightens us. But first, the, the history of the account. We know that Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. There wasn't any room in the inn. But uh, we, as we think about it, know that Joseph wouldn't have let those arrangements stand for very long, but the next day would have been going around looking for better arrangements for the Holy Family, finding a suitable place for them to live, at least for a little while. And we know from this text that the wise men found them in a house. Perhaps it was even their own house, so that Joseph went and bought a small home and was just gonna, they were just going to move from Nazareth and live there in Bethlehem. Perhaps it was a house of a relative or they were renting temporarily or something like this. But it seems like that Joseph and Mary thought that this move to Bethlehem was somewhat permanent. At some point now, to back up a little bit, perhaps when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, or perhaps the moment that he was born, a star appeared, it rose in the east, which indicated to these wise men who knew these things that the king of the Jews had been born. There were the wise men. The word in, in, in the Greek is magi, which is what we get the word magician from. They were these wise men who studied these things, and they could discern the preaching of the star so, they, so that they knew that when the star rose, that the promise had been fulfilled. Now, who are these men? We don't know. How did they know that the star preached the birth of Jesus? We don't know that either. How many were there? We also don't know that. We commonly think three. I think that's probably right because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and you'd hate to be the fourth wise man that came and he didn't have anything. But, but we, so, so three wise men, three of these princes from the east, but they, didn't, they would not have traveled alone. We read in the, in the, in the prophecy from Isaiah, that, or in the psalm, that the, the whole land was covered with the camels, so that they would have come in a large entourage. They would have had soldiers and servants, camels and horses. They would have tra- they, it, it was such a large group that when Herod saw them, he was afraid, and all of Jerusalem was also afraid. So this caravan comes into Jerusalem, and the whole city knew about it and was intimidated. Now, my, my best guess on who these guys are, and again, this is just my best guess. It could be totally wrong, We're just from the clues that we have, is that these were men who studied at a theological school in Babylon founded by Daniel, the prophet. That they would have studied the Scriptures, they would have studied the prophecies of the Old Testaments, and that Daniel himself must have had a special promise given to him about the star that was passed down through the centuries. Da- Daniel, you'll remember, went into Babylon sometime, maybe 590 B.C. or some, sometime before 586 B.C. And he came to power there, both in Babylon and then 
staying in Babylon even when the Persians took over, and he ruled there for over 70 years, uh, and, we, and, and he taught. He was, a, he was a teacher as well. So we can just guess that he must have founded a college there that would have taught the Scriptures. And if this idea is correct, then that means that there would have, this college would have been going for 5,000, or for, sorry, not five, let me do my math right here, for 500 years. And for these five centuries, they were waiting for the star and the sign that God gave to, to Daniel that the Messiah was born. Now that's just, again, my best guess. But anyways, they come to find this, they come to find the Messiah, the king of the Jews. They come bringing gifts, and they go first to Jerusalem and to Herod. Now, this makes sense. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, and Herod was the king placed there by the Romans. Now, a little bit of the Herod history. This is really fascinating, but we just got to touch the highlights. This is, this is the Herod called Herod the Great. This is not the, the Herod that was there at the trial and death of Jesus. That was his son. This is the father, Herod the Great, or sometimes called Herod the Builder, who would die in just a couple of years after the wise men visited. But the imprints that this man, this Herod, made on Israel are still there. He was this magnificent builder. He built cities and fortresses and monuments and palaces. He's the one who renovated the temple in Jerusalem and made it this huge, big, massive thing. All of that was overseen by Herod. And this Herod was particularly ruthless also. He protected his throne with murder and wickedness. He was an Edomite. That means he was a descendant of Esau. But he claimed to be part of the Jewish people by lineage. There was this big kind of fight that was always happening in the history. Is he really Jewish or not? Is he an insider or is he an outsider? He wasn't a Roman, but neither was he a true Israelite, although he was a descendant of Abraham. And the Romans put him in power over all of Israel, and they gave him the name, so this is important, they gave Herod the Great the name, the King of the Jews. So he was in charge also, and this is maybe another point, of protecting the eastern border of the Roman Empire against the Babylonians and Persians and Indians and everyone else who was trying to invade from the east. And in fact, he had just finished a war, a successful campaign out east, so you can imagine when a caravan, an entourage of wise men, of princes, come into the palace of Herod and they are asking where the king of the Jews is. You can imagine how that struck Herod. That we'll see Herod at his most Herody self. He devises, and, and you can see how, how he can plot, he devises uh, a plot to make sure that he can destroy whoever this child is that they come to see, uh, to preserve his own office, to preserve his own family, to preserve his throne, and so forth. Now, the first thing that Herod does is he calls all the scholars, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, he calls them all together and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, it doesn't tell us that he, he told them about the star. He just asked them what the prophets said. And they understood from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. It's a little tiny country village, but the hometown of King David. So after they learn this, Herod takes these wise men aside and he, he pesters them with all kinds of questions, especially he's anxious to know when the star appeared. And then he sends them to Bethlehem with instructions to find this child that they're looking for and to bring back word to Herod so that he could also go and worship him. Now, that was just a lie. 
But it must have convinced the wise men, think about this, the, the wise men who would have been very suspicious of Herod already, and there was a, that, that, that they, Herod must have been smooth enough to actually convince them that he was sincere. Because the wise men had to be told in a dream not to go back and tell Herod, but rather to go back another way. Now, when the wise men leave Jerusalem, the star that had risen to indicate the birth of Messiah now reappears. It must have disappeared for a while to their great distress, but it now reappears. And not only does it reappear, it actually leads them straight to Bethlehem and directly to the house where Jesus is with Mary, his mother. Now, there are two points that I'd like to pick up on this text from Luther. And here's the first point, which is important. The star reappears after the wise men heard the preaching of the word. So that the word comes first. Here's how Luther makes the point. The evangelist relates with care in our present narrative how the wise men first came to Jerusalem there to seek Christ. They thought that since Jerusalem was the capital and this child was king of the Jews, that they must surely find him there. In this they greatly erred, not in the majestic city of Jerusalem, but in the humble village of Bethlehem they find the child. Now mark this fact well. If we could come to this child and find him, we must not be guided by our thoughts or our human reason, but must follow the word of God and not turn from it the least. As soon as we lose sight of the word, we go astray. The child indeed had a great and glorious name, but yet he is poor and lonely. Hence, he will not be found amidst the great and pompous rulers at Jerusalem. We must therefore follow the example of the wise men. Believe the word of God and not be led astray by the gaudy show of the world. Whoever wanders from the word, ignoring the testimony of the scriptures concerning the child and judging from external experiences will certainly be mistaken and not find Christ. So the word comes first. The word of the prophet Micah points the prophets, uh, points from the prophets, points the wise men to Bethlehem. And then the star brings them to the house. Now, the text, to pick up a couple more things in the story, the text indicates that the wise men, when the star reappeared, were overflowing with joy, which, at least for me, has to correct the scene in my imagination. When I think of the wise men, I think of these three serious men walking through the night, worried about what's in front of them and about what's behind them, that they're going on this solemn pilgrimage there in quietness. No, that's not what the text says. When they saw the star, they rejoiced, exceedingly with great joy. You can hardly cram more joy into a single sentence. It's not just rejoice, they rejoiced exceedingly. And they didn't rejoice exceedingly with just joy, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The wise men were skipping on their way to Bethlehem with delight that they are going to see the Christ. Now we don't know how old Jesus was when the wise men came to visit It's popular in the nativity scenes, you know, to have the wise men there with the shepherds. That wasn't the case. They didn't go to the manger. They went to the house. I mean, it's it's a nice scene, 
I don't want you to go home and like X out the wise men on the paintings of your nativity or anything like that, but just to know the history. It's not the, it's not the same night. Now, the only hint that we have at how old Jesus was is that Herod, when he realizes what's going on, uh, when he'd been, when he'd been duped by the wise men, that they, they weren't going to come back and tell him, that he sends his soldiers down to Bethlehem to kill all the possible baby boys that could fit the prophecy, and he has them murder every child two and under. Now, does this mean that Jesus was two years old and under? It could be. But probably Herod just wants them to get anyone who could be even close. He gives a wide margin to, sure, to be sure the baby was destroyed. So, so we don't know, but the best guess is maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months old when they come and find Jesus. And here we get to the point. The wise men come now into Bethlehem, and they come into the house, and they see Jesus and Mary, and they fall down, and they worship him. Now, this is significant, perhaps the most significant thing of all. The Gospel of Matthew begins and ends with the worship of Jesus. It's like two bookends to the story. Here we are at the beginning when the wise men come from the east and they fall down and they worship him even when he's just a baby. And at the end, when Jesus goes up the mountain right before his ascension and his disciples come and find him, the text says, the same, using the same words that we just had, the disciples fell, fell down and worshipped Jesus. Jesus is to be worshipped. That's the point. And we want to know this above all else, before everything else, that Jesus is God. When the wise men, these powerful, old, joyful, sage princes, when they fall down on their face before, the ba- before this baby, they are confessing this, that Jesus is God. And it's absolutely wonderful because they see what the world cannot see. That the fullness of God is clothed, is hidden in the human nature of this baby called Jesus. Here we'll pick up the second point from Luther. He says this, When the wise men had overcome their temptation to doubt and were born again by the great joy, they were strong and took no offense at Christ. They had overcome in the trial. For although they enter a lowly hut and find a poor young wife with a poor little child and find less of royal appearance than their own homes or even the homes of their servants, they are not led astray. But in a great, strong, living faith, they remove from their eyes and their minds whatever might attract and influence human nature with its pretense. They follow the word of the prophet and the sign of the star in all simplicity, treat the child as a king, fall down before him, worship him, and offer gifts. This, Luther continues, this is a strong faith indeed, for it casts aside many things which impress human nature. Perhaps there were some people present who thought of the wise men. What great fools these men are to worship such a poor child. They must indeed be in a trance to make of him a king. Do you see that the wisdom of faith seems like foolishness to the world? But think of it. We'll meet these wise men in the resurrection. They are Christians. They worship Jesus with us. And they receive from him the forgiveness of all of their sins. 
They, again, they, they, they then go on to provide the Holy Family with gifts. They have gold for royalty, frankincense for priesthood, myrrh for the death of Jesus. And these gifts would finance the exile uh, of the Holy Family down to Egypt. Dreams come. In fact, it seems like that very night, dreams come both to the wise men and to Joseph. The wise men are not to go back to Herod, but to depart for their own country in a different way. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus are also supposed to leave and go down south into exile in Egypt to protect the child from Herod. Now, why not send, I wonder this, why not send Mary and Joseph and Jesus back with the wise men to the east where they could protect him along the way and in their palaces? Again, we don't know. We know at least that the Lord has another promise to fulfill from Hosea. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. And so after Herod died, the Lord would call the Holy Family back up from Egypt into Israel. And this is the history. Now, I want I, I was thinking about this as we covered the history. This is where I want to see if anybody has any questions, but that's for Bible class. So if anybody has any questions, we'll talk about it in a Bible class. Because now we have to think about what the history teaches us Because in this text, the Holy Spirit puts before us in a wonderful way the different ways that people react to Jesus. There's, do you see how there's the same, the same gift, the same baby is there for all the people, but there's three very distinct ways that people react to it. The first is the rabbis and the scholars and the priests in Jerusalem who have the scriptures, who know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, but just don't go to visit. They're indifferent. You would think that they would at least send someone along with the wise men to check things out, but apparently they've got better things to do. Which, and by the way, I think this describes the spiritual condition of most of our neighbors. They're They're not like Herod, who's raging against the Christ and wants to kill him. They're not these angry atheists that you see on TV that want to that hate God, most people just don't really care. They're just worried about other things. They're interested in other things. They, they, might, they might claim to be Christian, but they just are, simply can't be bothered to open their Bibles or to come to church to hear the preaching of the Word. It's just, well, that's interesting, but it's not, it doesn't mean anything. That's the first reaction to Jesus. And then there's a second reaction, which is Herod who is not indifferent at all. Herod will go to Bethlehem in a heartbeat, and he's going to go with all his fury and all of his his wrath. Herod is murderous and self-willed, and the Pharisees later become like this. Can you imagine this crazy thing? That most of the Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but still they wanted to kill him. And why? I suppose, like Herod, they wanted to be their own god. They didn't want another savior. Herod wants to protect his throne. He doesn't want to get off of the throne. And he knows that Jesus might make such demands, because Jesus does make demands. He makes demands of us. We must, for example, we must recognize that we are sinners if we want to have Jesus as our savior. And we don't want to. We are, all of us are experts at self-justifying, of arguing and proving our own innocence. So we have to recognize, Jesus demands that we recognize that we cannot save ourselves. 
If Jesus is going to be the Savior, then we can't be the Savior. We have to get off of that seat. The throne that says Savior has to be vacated by us so that Jesus can sit on it. Which requires us to get off of the throne of our own self-righteousness. And if you don't want to do that, then you're going to be angry, violent, attacking any attacking anyone who would claim to be God, attacking especially Jesus. So you have the, the indifferent scholars, and then you have the violent tyrants, and then you have the third reaction to Jesus, which is the faithful wise men. This is what we're after. Faith. Trusting in Christ. Worshiping Him. Knowing that God's Word is true. Now, now this is something really quite stunning for us to consider and to wonder about. How the wise men could see what nobody else could see. I mean, they looked at the star, and everybody could see the star. Right? But the wise men saw something different in the star. They saw that the Messiah is born. They heard the preaching of Micah, just like everybody else heard the preaching of Micah, but the wise men knew something different, that it was fulfilled, and they went to Bethlehem to see it. And and they saw the baby there in the lap of Mary, a baby which everybody else could see, which everybody else could look at and say, that just looks like a normal baby. But they could see something different. They knew that that child was God in the flesh. The wise men had a different vision, you see. They were enlightened. Now, we hear that word enlighten or enlightenment a lot, and it's mostly connected with sort of the Eastern eclectic spirituality where you're meditating and trying to clear your mind, and suddenly you have this, this the deep things of the universe come breaking into your mind. Now, that is not how the Bible speaks of enlightenment. To be enlightened is to be able to see things according to the Word of God and not according to the flesh. To be enlightened means to be able to see according to the truth of God's Word. Remember how we all learned it in the Catechism. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to Him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the Gospel, enlightened me with His gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, so that the Holy Spirit enlightens us. He he opens our eyes so that we would see the world not with the eyes of flesh, but with spiritual eyes or eyes of the Spirit. The wise men had this. They saw the star. They heard the preaching. They saw this baby with spiritual eyes, with eyes of the Spirit, according to God's Word. And this is for us. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to work in us through His Word today and every time we hear his word, that we, that you, would be enlightened. That you would see the world with spiritual eyes. And seeing the world this way changes everything. It changes the way you see yourself. When when we look at ourselves with spiritual eyes, not according to the flesh, we see our sin rightly, that we're the enemies of God, that we deserve God's wrath, that we can't save ourselves. Spiritual eyes also see that we are, in fact, loved by God. Can you imagine it? That when you are justified by faith, that the Lord Jesus sees you as perfect and holy and clean and beautiful in His sight. Can you just imagine for a minute getting a glimpse of yourself 
from God's perspective. As he sees you through the death of Jesus. It's amazing to think about. And that's the most important thing that spiritual eyes see. That when we look at the baby in the lap of Mary or the man crucified on the cross, that we see that this is truly God in our flesh and our, our Savior, the one who rescues us from sin and death. This is the most important thing that spiritual eyes see. But spiritual eyes also look at your neighbor. Now think about this. That you judge your neighbor, you look at your neighbor, not according to the eyes of the flesh, but according to the eyes of the Spirit, so that you see that that person next to you is someone who's created by God. Someone who's created in God's image. Someone who's fallen, who's a sinner, but someone who's died for by Jesus, who's loved by God. And this is particularly important when we're fighting with people or when we have enemies. Because spiritual eyes see that person according to the love of God and according to the forgiveness of Jesus. If Jesus looks at that person and loves them, then we with spiritual eyes begin to look at them in the same way. Spiritual eyes look at the people that are around you, your family, your co-workers, and they see, you see them as the neighbor that God has given you to love. Uh, spiritual eyes are not looking at the outward things that we normally look at, that we normally use to judge, but we're looking at the person rightly. Spiritual eyes marvel at creation. Know that God has created everything in the world for us, to bless us, and that he's put us here on earth to look after things. Spiritual eyes look at the past and the future differently than the eyes of the world. We, we see, can you, we talked about this a couple of weeks. We see everything in history driving towards a great feast. <laughs> it's stunning. So we see the world this way. And we see, and we see each other this way. And we see the Bible this way. And we see Jesus this way. It's how we look at one another. Because we are, by the Holy Spirit, we are enlightened. We see, at least we're beginning to, we see with the eyes of God. And there's a way that we practice this vision every week. In a few minutes, your eyes, your eyes of flesh will see bread and wine. But the Holy Spirit comes with the words of Jesus, this is my body, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. And we believe, we see with spiritual eyes that these words are true. And we will see and we will know what is right. And rejoice in the treasures of God on the table, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember how Luther says that the world saw the wise men bowing down at Jesus and said, what great fools they were. Well, I suppose the world would see the same, say the same thing when they see us kneeling at this rail. But spiritual eyes know that Christ is present, that Christ is merciful, that you are the friends of God, and that Jesus is the Savior. So we too have exceedingly great joy. Because the same Jesus who was born and died to save the wise man was wise men were born was born and died to also save you. And he has done it. And we have seen it. God be praised. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding. 
Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.